for all you millennials out there, this podcast is for you. I sit down with Jacqueline Cripps, coach and author of Smashed Avocado and the Quarter Life Crisis, a survival guide for all you millennials out there on how to take back your life. Jacqueline discusses the expectations we place on ourselves that hinder the growth of our aspirations, dreams, and more importantly, our mental health. As we discuss the reasons behind these millennial issues, Jacqueline gives some starting pointers to begin the process of taking ownership over your life. Enjoy. Dreamers can't be tamed. Oh. Um, so I was wondering, why do you believe that millennials have so many expectations and more so than our previous generation, our, our parents, our baby boomers and, and generations? Yeah. Why do you think that now millennials struggle with the idea of meeting so many expectations and now have to deal with the repercussions of those expectations or establishing those expectations, with, which is anxiety, loneliness, mm. depression? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's a couple of reasons why. I think first, first and foremost, I think it, 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 is, it is how we've been brought up um, as a start. And, and I know I, I speak about it in my book, but kind of a, a generation who have been brought up like with helicopter parenting right so it's almost like i'm not just saying that we've been mollycoddled as kids but we've had our parents do everything for us um push us towards the, the brink and I, and I kind of feel like this is in some parts perhaps because they haven't you know that there, there might have been some some lacks or gaps in their own upbringing where they're either trying to make sure that their, their children aren't losing out or, or going through the same disadvantages that they did or reliving their dreams through their children. And I think a lot of our generation have been kind of, you know, we've been rewarded for everything, right? You know, I, I remember growing up in school, um, going to sports carnival, the teachers, it was always, you know, good job. It's all the praise. It's a pat on the back. You get a participation award for not even doing anything. You know, it's you, your parents are, are kind of, they're making decisions for you. It's so I, I think in large part, it's, it's how we've grown up. And I think that has built on this expectation where we have become perfectionists because we've always got to be achieving. We've always got to be achieving whether or not we're, we're trying to prove ourselves to our parents because of the expectations our, our parents have on us whether it's because we're wanting to get this reward and gratification of trophies or participation awards or whatever it might be, I kind of feel like that that in, in large part has kind of shaped how we've, how we've grown and then coming out into the real, the, the real world, so to speak, when you kind of graduate from college, well, you know, it's not, the teachers aren't teaching you how it is in, in the real world when you have to come out of college. And I, and I know even to this point in day, I've got millennial friends who are in their 30s and they're either still living at home with their parents or they're, they're, they're living down the road or their parents are trying to help with you know, buy houses and all this kind of stuff. Or, or And I've, I've known people where their parents have picked their colleges that they've gone to or, you know, so it's kind of like, or, or, or turned up for job interviews. Like, so, so the parents have become so ingrained in, in, in our lives and built these expectations that I think it, it, it's hard, it's been very difficult for us to then try to get some independence in some respects and kind of deal with the actual realities of the world where, you know, we, ha we have to go and we have to get out and we have to kind of make a life for ourselves. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing because I think our parents 
have been wonderful in being able to support, especially when, you know, the cost of living is so exciting so high we've got debt we've got except you know all these other issues but i kind of feel certainly for you know i'm at the other the kind of the older end of the millennial spectrum but i know for me when i look back on my childhood I go yeah like i can i can see and i can see it how it's played out in my family with my siblings um so i think that in some parts is is part of the problem i think mental health also is not something that yeah we're talking about it now but it certainly wasn't something that we talked about in my family or I did with growing up and I grew up with significant, I'll say significant mental health issues, but I was a depressed child. I had an eating disorder at 13 and 12 and 13, which my parents didn't know how to deal with at all, like at all. And I never ever sought treatment for that. So that was something I carried for 10 years of my life on and off. I had depression. I know and in, on reflection when I was 15, I was such an isolated, lonely teenager um, I, could, I could never relate to anybody. And then I had depression. I was officially diagnosed with depression when I was 19, um, ended up taking an overdose of pills in my, when I turned 20, you know, so, but, but I couldn't talk to my parents about it. And I, and I realized that when I did, they had not just the, the knowledge, but they didn't want to talk about it because it wasn't something that their generation dealt with, right? Baby boomers don't talk about mental health. So I think we've kind of, there's, there's also a part of us where we've kind of had to deal with internal struggles when it comes to our mental health, where it's like, well, it's kind of like we've always been, this is kind of something that doesn't necessarily become the norm, but it's something that we internalise, right? And I know that there's so much support out there these days and, and, and we've shifted so much in terms of the amount of support and the conversations that we're having. But I think there's still a lot of us internalise these struggles, don't necessarily always reach out, and then it does play into that feeling of isolated and being alone in these particular times. So that's kind of, yeah. I, and I, I think that's playing out. Yeah, yeah no, I 1000% agree. And I don't know if you, I don't know the psychologist's name. It's an Indian woman. Um, she developed a program called Conscious Parenting, mm. um, which is pretty interesting because it made me realize that awareness um, in terms of, how we interact with other people, especially our children, is very yeah. important. So like you said, uh, your parents, right? I think one of the reasons, and you know, I hypothesize is when parents don't want to necessarily engage in, engage in mental health issues with their child is because it directly says something about their parenting. Yeah. <laughs> and that directly hurts their ego. And the thing is that they've invested so much into creating a version of themselves, which they can create within them because they have their expectations and their stories. Absolutely. That now when they see the problems come out in their child, it's like, no, I don't want to talk about this because I don't want to face it because that means I didn't do a good job in parenting. Yeah. And, and I struggle with that too. Cause like my father was, you know, the same way. My father was a military man. He's like, no, mm. this just these things just happen in life, mm. you know? And mm. it's not till now as he got, as he's gotten older and, you know, he has younger children, younger than me, I'm his oldest. And he's able to see how that creates an impact when you don't address the mental health yeah. aspect of it and how it has a long lasting impact into the decision-making and the habits mm. that, you know, as children we have in our lives yeah and i thought that was very very interesting but i'm gonna send you the psychologist's name because yeah do do conscious parenting she created that and she talks about there's a very fine line between you know guiding a child 
you know, kind of creating multiple paths mm. and not inputting our mental model of the world on our child mm. um, versus letting your ego. So it's like your ego can yeah. come into that and you're going to force your mental model or you're going to let your child make the mistakes and learn mm. and understand mm. that those things are okay. Yeah. This so, is a really, really interesting book. And I think, yeah, really, really good points. Um, so how do we begin to take ownership of this? Because I have a lot of millennial friends and mm. I, you know, they can easily blame on the external of like, my parents were like yeah. this and I grew up like this. And to me in my head is like, okay, you still hold on to that identity of Absolutely. how you were as a kid. How do we begin to do the real work? Because I, I know for me, it was very, very uncomfortable. But knowing that it was very uncomfortable, knew that I was changing. So how do you begin to, to suggest to millennials in doing that work, starting that process from your own experience? Yeah, I think, I think again, you, you, I, I agree with you. I think uh, there are a lot of people out there that, I mean, I, I call it like victim mentality. I don't, I don't do victim mentality because I know when you do the work on yourself, it's not comfortable at all. Like it's nobody wants to like look at themselves in the mirror and go, okay, let's start taking responsibility for my life and ownership over the decisions I'm making and kind of realizing that I can't blame everything else. And that for me was my, was my fundamental point and kind of what led me into writing my first book was around that whole realization of going, oh shit, my life is the way it is because I'm like the common denominator in all of this. It's me that has to change, right? So, you, and I've got to do the work. So I think it starts with, it start, I think for me, it always starts with awareness, right? And I think unless, and that's, I guess, for like the work that I do, it is creating awareness because we don't know what we don't know. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who are living their lives blaming or not taking responsibility because they, they, don't, they, they, they don't know anything else because that's kind of the way of, of being. And I think the way a lot of the world tend to operate. So it's kind of like having the conversation go, well, let's start being aware. And, and even as, as we've just said, you know, even with looking at like conscious parenting, it's going, okay, well, well, this is philosophy here and this is it. And this is how we attach our egos and, and this. So it's creating that awareness and going, okay, okay, right. I get it. And being open to being able to want to change. And I think it certainly comes back to the individual because you're always going to play a victim and you'll never take responsibility and you never change unless you actually want to. So I think it, it, there is a mindset to that is where people's willingness and openness to be able to research or look at themselves or open themselves up to different ways of being or, or study or whatever it might be in order to create the life that they want and be the person that they, they want to be and kind of reach that best level of self. But I think, it, I think you know, to answer your question, um, I think it first starts with with creating awareness and then it starts with taking responsibility and a commitment to start taking ownership and if not just ownership but a commitment to start to explore what it is that you know whether it is work on yourself or or extra study to try to, to broaden your perspective and shift that mindset that's kind of where it it, it, it start it, it starts from i think and there is as i said a real mindset in you've got to stop blaming and it, and it is that first that fundamental of going you have to take responsibility for yourself and your life that's it that hands down you have to take responsibility for it and unless you're kind of willing to do that then 
you know, you'll always play victim, you'll always blame somebody else. And, and this is where the ego really drives into our behavior. Um, and it is a conscious thing, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in saying, oh, well, I didn't do this because of the excuses, right? Or, or, or somebody else or something. It's always something and we can always blame something else. But we all have a part to play in everything, you know, in every interaction we have in every situation, there is always some level of responsibility that we have in that. And I think it, and it's creating that consciousness around that. So living in a much more conscious, deliberate way. What's, what's your um your like your definition of awareness because a lot of people can easily go into that and say well you know i'm aware i know these stories identify who i am mm -hmm. but i think that sometimes we get awareness confused with maybe rumination or reminiscing and they're like i know my stories but then how do we actually take responsibility after that point so we see our stories but is that true awareness for you yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess in some part it is, but it isn't. It's like there's one thing to be aware, and it's like, well, well, then what do you do with that? Because I think awareness is one thing, but without acting with that information or without having a change in behaviour, then is it really awareness? Is it more ignorance? Is then it become ignorance? Or like so, so kind of like I don't know. I think it's a really good question. I don't think I can. I don't think I can answer it. <laughs> But I think there's, I think you need to be aware, but you need to do something with that. I don't think you can kind of, because I still think you can easily fall back into that. Oh, sure. You know, I, I can see because, because then you run the risk of going, well, you know what? I know that that's my story and that's playing out. And then that, that's, that's fine. You know, what? I'm just going to put that aside because that's my story. I, yeah, I'm aware of that, blah, blah, but you're not doing anything about it. Right. So it's still. I think by avoiding, you're also like, for me, awareness is being able to look at a story, a situation without judgment. Mm. So I see my story coming up. I just see it. Yeah. I don't necessarily judge it because to avoid it is to say that you're judging it. All right, I see this story. I no longer want to see it anymore. So therefore I have this negative connotation mm. with the story. Therefore mm. I'm going to ignore it. So then what does that mean? If you have judgment, you're not willing to be vulnerable. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable, how can you ever take action? Yeah. It's going to fall back into the same behavior pattern. So that's why I was, I was really curious to see how you saw awareness, because I think a lot of people, especially when I talk to my clientele, you know, they're like, all right, so tell me, you know, talk about your story. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like when I went through this and this, I know that I, I just know, but I got to change this. And I'm like, yeah, but the fact that you're judging that story and yeah. you're not really being vulnerable with that story doesn't allow you to change the behavior because you feel that it has nothing to do with who you are right now mm. when it's a fundamental root mm. in your behavior and the decision-making that you have. Mm. Mm. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. It's kind of like having to, to, to get that point of being the observer, as you've said, being able to kind of look at it, but remain detached from it. Okay. Observe it, be the observer, see it playing out and kind of like not, not avoiding but integrating it but kind of not getting attached so it is yeah it's it's i think it's a it's a it's a very in my experience i think it's a very it's a very hard thing to to get to a point where you can actually do that um and but do that for, for most situations but it's a really the way i see it and the kind of the way i do it, when i get to this position where you become the observer it's fascinating it's a, it's a real fascinating way of being in a way i guess a way of seeing 
um, it's just it's almost like just a different level, right? Of just like existence where you can kind of, yeah, it's just that consciousness. I find it, I just find it fascinating. I really do. So then my, my next question for you would be, how do you deal with the emotions of mm. the stories that, so in your personal experience, you, you expressed that you had a rough uh, young adult um, experience in terms of growing up, dealt with depression, you know, all that stuff. How did you, when you started looking into those stories and building the awareness, how did you deal with the emotional response that you got from that? Because I think that's another big thing is that we're not necessarily aware of our emotions. And what happens is we start to judge those emotions instead of observe them. Yeah. And because we judge those emotions, we no longer want to do the work. We don't want to become vulnerable because we feel that these emotions that we're feeling from our previous stories mm. are negative feelings. Mm. So how, when, I don't know if you, you're able to do it, if you're able to kind of remember how you started getting through that experience or building the awareness, how did you start dealing with the emotions or how do you currently deal with your emotions right now? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll try and answer it in two parts. When I, so I guess when I started my journey, I, I kind of gone to therapy and, you know, I, I, I ventured down the spiritual path of doing a lot of meditation uh, and self-work. I guess in, in trying to deal with the emotion, it's kind of, so, so for me, I guess in, in how I dealt with it was it, 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 I kind of look at it and it's, because of the, I'm just trying to think of like the simplest way to say this, you know, with the way I helped look, you know, kind of move through my journey was the philosophy that I brought into that is in that is everything happens for a reason. Everything is a learning. We, you know, we're infinite souls that we've come here, we've incarnated. This is all part of it. So we've signed up for it, right? This is it. It's a learning. So for me, it was more about that mindset of going, okay, so this, this happened and not so much about the emotion, but about acknowledging the experience as, as a learning. Yes, the, the, the kind of the emotion was like the human side, but the experience is much more for our soul evolution and growth. So I think it, as part of that whole healing, it, it, it was to kind of think about it in that sense, but to also integrate those emotions and, and, and be okay with feeling the, the, the way that I did and coming to that kind of acceptance of going, well, I felt grief or hurt or anger or pain, but then having to, at some point, release all that. And I think that that, that release, I think, for me, was a lot of forgiveness, a lot of forgiveness work. I think, you know, in reflection, it kind of gets rid of those, certainly the emotions, the residual emotions that kind of sit there and they kind of fester. Um, I, I think... I think for me now and how I deal with my emotions is I'm, I'm much more aware in with, so again, it's coming back to that awareness of going, okay, so, you know, we're looking at energy, we're looking at vibrations. You kind of want to, so for me, I, I want to be keeping trying up in those high vibrational states. I don't want to particularly be going down to those low, low vibrational states, notwithstanding that, you know, it happens because we're human, then we'll be triggered and we'll have people that irk us or whatever it might be. But, but for, I think first and foremost, it's, it's, it's recognising how I'm feeling and then go, okay, that's okay, but to either sit with it or to kind of actively, and it's not like an, an, not ignoring the emotion, 
but going, okay, so coming back to the responsibility of I have a responsibility for how I feel. So how can I lift my energy and my vibration up? So I'm in a much more, uh, a, a lighter state of being, or I'm shifting or I'm going back into gratitude. So gratitude for me is a, is a big, like, like blanket, like a, a reset on, on anything that, that I might feel, particularly on those lower vibrational energies where I find myself get frustrated or irritated. I'm like, okay, so let's step back into gratitude because it is this alter state of, you know, receivership and, and it kind of resets everything. Cause when you're thankful, you can't be like annoyed. Right. So it's kind of like resetting that. But, but I think there's a fine line because I, even with the, with people I talk to around, do we ignore the emotion or do we sit with it and let it be with us? And I think we should absolutely acknowledge the emotion and feel what we need to feel, right, to, to be able to, to, to move through things. But then I think that there is a, some part where we can't continue to sit around, like around in, in, in low vibrational states because it doesn't help us move forward. Mm-hmm. So it's then trying to find the ways of, of moving out of that vibrational state and, and that emotion and whether that is through therapy or, or some kind of practice or meditation or gratitude or whatever it is, or, or you know, deep diving, you know, into whatever that, that issue might be to, to get back into a state where we are much more, you know, we're back in that state of awareness and consciousness where we uh, can can sit in a space where we, we start again to be mindful and conscious of, of how we're feeling and how we're reacting and, and those interactions and situations with people that we have. So I think it's a, it's a kind of, I think I've really answered that in a very cohesive or coherent manner but I think there's kind of there's a there's a little bit to it I, I mean I think it's hard to answer it in a cohesive yeah manner. It's, a very, <laughs> it's a very intrinsic type of work which which I think there's that's why the coaching industry has grown mm. so much is because it's having someone help you realize these things yeah. having someone help you guide uh, yourself through these emotions and develop the skill of awareness and vulnerability, which mm-hmm. I think is fundamental in whenever you have to change. Uh, when we let, ever look, whenever we look at someone's growth, we know that there's been a moment of awareness and vulnerability. So yeah. absolutely, that's hard to kind of articulate and definitely kind of make it into cohesive methodology, if you will, that allows us to actually use it and change. Uh, which is what I'm trying to do here, and what you do with your your clients as well. So uh for sure um so before you got into this type of industry what were you doing before when you were talking about you were saving up for your your retirement and trying to buy a house and build these uh, pay off debt and all this stuff what were you doing before and then what made you change what was the decision behind changing into this kind of field in this industry yeah so I've had quite a diverse career history. I went to, went to, when I was in college or university, I kind of didn't really, I wasn't one of these people in college where I had figured out what I wanted to do. And that's kind of the pressure that's, that's placed on a lot of, you know, college kids these days. It's like, well, you've got to pick this one thing that you want to do for the rest of your life and then go to university and take out all this loan and, and, and then that be it. And I think for me, even, even at that point in my life, I'm like, oh, I'm not quite sure about this. I don't know what I want to do and why can't we do many things and not one thing. But again, this is what, you know, you brought up in your family. So um, coming out of university, I actually did a, a social sciences degree. I then uh, took a year off and I did some travel and uh, I actually then started kind of like my first real career as a police officer um, because I wanted to help people. And that was kind of what I'd felt like for me is, 
the one thing I wanted to do with my career was I just wanted to help people. So I went into policing with that mindset of wanting to help people. And I spent three and a half years um, in uh, doing, doing that. And I, I guess whether or not I'd started at that young age in my twenties to become consciously aware of kind of like culture and experience and what you get exposed to in those, in, in that type of role. For me, it was almost like, Oh, I'm not kind of really having that level of impact and helping people the way I wanted to. It's kind of more of the dealing with the other, the other extremes of, of society and, and the negative and that takes a toll. Um, you know, so I, I kind of got to a point where, I, I, I couldn't see myself moving forward. Um, there was a few external circumstances at the time where it wasn't possible to, you know, move location or do any kind of career progression or development. And I just went, you know what, it's time to do something new. So I actually went back to university and this is kind of when I studied psychology because I thought that I wanted to be a psychologist again to help people. And I was so fascinated with human behaviour and myself. Um, then I, I moved into, so, so while studying, I, I moved into a role working with criminal justice in um, Victorian government, which was in Australia, assessing people's suitability to work with kids, so almost like child protection. And then from there, um, I kind of went into project management for emergency services, then moved across here to, um, to London, um, worked, again, all in public service, worked for the mayor, um, worked for Transport for London, and then as part of that though still doing what I'm doing kind of building my business on the side of, 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 of that passion work for me um, obviously in the meantime I kind of written my book um, you know fueled and sparked by my own personal journey so that's kind of yeah so, so I've kind of got to this point now where I'm kind of doing what I'm doing but it's been this like integrated or you know not a, not a clear it's not always really clear around what I'm wanting to do with help other people and this, this passion area of mine has definitely been there in the last the last few years but I guess getting to this point has been quite colorful I guess to you know there's a lot of a lot of experience that I kind of feel like I'm, I'm bringing in at this point in time and I don't think that's ever going to change because like you know it's it's life right <laughs> yeah. um is there like one thing that you wish you would have known before you like started going into this process of building your coaching business entrepreneurial business yeah um I guess it's it's it can be it can be really lonely work. I think um, you know as a as a as an entrepreneur or as a business owner. I think if um, it's not as much if I had have known would I I mean I, I wouldn't change anything. But I think I probably would have got support and advice and built like a community well and truly before I had done if that makes sense and kind of tried to surround myself with like-minded people because what I've come to realize in, the, in this field and with the work that I'm doing you kind of need to be surrounded and you need to have the support and mentoring to, 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 to be this so I think for me to have established those communities earlier on I think would have been would be more helpful but I think because of the way I've kind of got to this point and this whole trying things and experimenting and experiencing life and not really knowing you know I, I, I don't know if I would have even had the, the awareness back then to go okay so I know what I'm going to be doing in three years time I better like start creating my community of people around me but I think I think fundamentally if I were to go back a little bit earlier than that even around the whole career it's 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 being told that being told or, or having the confidence to know, you know what, I don't have to sign up for any one thing and that there is no one path. There are multiple pathways and you can take 
any one of those pathways at any point in time that you want to. And there is no, there's no right or wrong. There's no black or white. Life is colorful. It's gray. It's, it's, and it's kind of like we're a playground and we have this potential to do and be anything that we want to. Mm-hmm. But th- so if I had been given that advice, I probably would have done things a little bit differently. Although that said, I kind of feel like I've put my finger in a lot of different pies to try to get to this point. But I think that's not what younger, that's not what we're taught. And that's kind of something that we should be taught very early on is do what makes you happy and, and what, you know, brings you joy and, and leading from that heart led space as opposed to what you think you should be doing based on what society tell you, or what your parents think you should be doing It is and be willing to experiment and have fun and learn what you want and don't want and learn what you like and what you don't like, because unless you try it, you're never going to know. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, if I, I would have loved to have had that advice like in my teens, you know, before I'd hit my twenties. <laughs> I think that's an amazing point you bring up. Uh about doing what makes you happy. Do you know the, the coach, Kyle Cease? He's a big comedian. No, I don't. He said this one thing that changed my life, that it was like, all right, now I know that I'm doing the right thing, is if you were to experiment and take an adult, and, and you, know, you have nice furniture all around this place, mm. you take an adult, and you put a paint set, a paint set in front of them, and then you take that same paint, paint set and you put it in front of a baby. Who's going to have more fun? Who's going to enjoy the experience a lot more? And then I was like, holy crap, the baby. The only thing that doesn't, that doesn't allow us to enjoy something yeah. is the fact that we have all these expectations. And in your book, you talk about it, which is like these expectations, these norms, this, these, the uh, conformity that we have to mm. have of like even just that paint set example like no can't get paint on the table i can't get paint on the floor like just that prevents you from having because someone told you when you were a kid yeah oh you can't get paint on the floor on the table you're gonna ruin things and it's just like it's just it's just like all of this can be replaced and like when that thought and i I was finally aware of that thought right there i was like holy shit just just be a baby like yeah. literally go into things trying to have the most fun. And that's I think, really beautiful. Yeah. If you look at a baby, you know, they'll experience a tragic moment in terms of like they lost their toy or they mm. fell down and mm. they let themselves mm. cry and they experience mm. the emotion. And then two minutes later, they're fine. You yeah. know, back to being happy again and just yeah. Yeah. What they do. no judgment, no expectations, no social norms or nothing yeah and and I think I think that's a it's a beautiful thing but I think we we absolutely do at some point we we lose that innocence right and that 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 child in us because of suddenly we now have to put on these adult boots and go like with these expectations of living this life um and we do, and I haven't found myself, I was one of those people, and I still find myself at times being so highly strung around, oh, my, but I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to do this. And I'm like, hang on a minute, but just mm-hmm. take a chill pill, do something, you know, play your guitar or write or, 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 or go for a walk, or do, just, you know, chill out. Like, you don't have to be doing constantly. Um, so that's something for me that even, even to this point in time, I pick myself up on. But I think it's a really beautiful example that you've given around that be the baby. It's that innocence, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what was your, your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Oh, wow. Biggest failure. Oh my gosh. 
in life or in business or in no, just in, in general in general in your life oh i guess what do i look at as failure because this is the thing i i don't try to look at things as i know like this failure but i look at things as learnings and opportunities okay. to learn as opposed to failures um so what has been been your biggest learning opportunity oh gosh this is a big one because i feel like my whole entire life has been a, a massive journey um i think for me i'm just i'm i'm going back because I'm, i'm feeling like i'm going back like into my 20s here of kind of those days of of like exploring just the exploring i look i i also think my biggest failure wasn't trying things getting caught up in 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 pressure at such a young age when i could have been exploring so i feel like i've sacrificed a lot of my 20s being so caught up in worrying about my future that i feel like that's been my biggest failing is not using my early 20s with the money i had saved to to have more fun and experience life and to invest more in myself but rather i was too worried about being caught up in my investment property mortgages and kind of living that paycheck to paycheck existence because that's kind of what i was led to believe so yeah so i think that's probably been my biggest failing and big learning is kind of sacrificing a good part of my life to to what I should have been doing, um, quote unquote, rather than what I actually wanted to be doing. Do you feel like you're in your happiest moment now? Yeah, I think like for me, I think life has just, life just continues to get better. I don't like like aging, but I'm like, my life just keeps getting better. <laughs> um, but but I do, I kind of feel like, you know, I, I am, I'm kind of like, I'm gonna say a peak because I don't think there is a peak. It's just like, we keep growing and evolving. But for me, I'm absolutely like, at like the, the elevate, the most elevated point I think I've been at in my lifetime to date. You so. said you were uh, a later millennial. How old are you? I'm 35. So like there's there's so there's like a millennials up to around thirty nine forty yeah, where it's 40. kind of like the cutoff and up down to like twenty four. So if I'd say I was probably more I mean I say the the older but kind of like millennials are split into two right. You've got like the cohort that grew up without tech. So for me like you know the computers came when I was like a teenager and phone. But then you've got the younger millennials who have only have have always had tech around them right. So I could just, there yeah. is like a differentiation between. I don't really consider them for millennials for some reason because I feel like millennials <laughs> like when you look at millennials now we I think I we said this the last time uh, we spoke is that millennials have such an advantage in the sense that uh, if you get out of your own way. We're the only generation that was able to grow up with regular social norms in terms of interacting with each other, conversing, but at the same time, seeing technology be emerged into our yeah. lives and utilizing it as a tool to mm-hmm. create amazing things. And I think that like, uh, we actually have a lot of power, which is probably why you see a lot of the, you know, the different things happening in the world is because you have a battle between two big generations which is the baby boomers and the millennials yeah. and our our different perspectives on life and how we're supposed to be living mm. it's what causes the kind of the the clash in terms mm. of the economy in terms of education mm. health mm. 
I think that plays a big role. And then you have like, even after the baby boomers, I think it's generation. Um, Gen X. Gen X, which yeah. they're kind of quiet. <laughs> yeah, but then after the millennials you see after the millennials there's this gen gen uh, gen, gen z gen, yeah yeah that they're quiet but then you have this new group of uh uh the, the alpha like it's the babies of the millennial you've got the alpha yeah. gen or apple gen i think they're called these days <laughs> so i feel like the baby boomers are the alpha then gen x are like the, the yeah and you got the yeah. versions of alphas which are the ones that grew up in the 80s and then you have this beta version <laughs> And this is what clashes. We're going to have our clash with our gen next generation. Yeah, yeah. But that's a really good point you've raised because I, I do think that. It's like, you know, I think Gen X do get overlooked, but you're right. When you look when you look at anything in life, it's almost like it's the parent. It's our parents. We're, we're constantly fighting with our parents on the globe, whether it's politics or leadership or workplace management or whatever it is. It's like there is the constant clash between the boomers and the millennials. And yeah. it's crazy because I was talking to my partner and I was like, think about this, man. Our ego is our first voice in our head in terms of telling us what is right and wrong is our parents. So when you went to school mm. and you were trying to make a decision and you mm. didn't know whether it was going to be right and wrong, whose voice was in your head? Your parents. Mm. Then we start to get new voices into our minds, which is our friends, our teachers and all this stuff. And that develops a new ego, a new identity. So now what happens is you have a clash within yourself because you want to experience different yeah. things. You have yeah. all these different voices. Yeah. And the one voice that you're going to constantly argue with is the first one. And it's yep. your parents' voice. And yep. this is exactly what we see all the time. Absolutely. And that's our projection. It's like, so everybody, everybody older than us is now our parents that we're having this debate and this, you know, it's like, this is how it's playing out. <laughs> that's awesome. So um, where can, you know, our listeners here, Vita Project and Dreamer Journey, where can they learn more about you? Where can they find you? So I'm, um, I've got a website, um, JacquelineCrips.com. If you plug me into Google, um, that'll come up. I've got Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So they're kind of the, 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 the four biggest ways you can reach me. So, but easily findable. Okay, awesome. And my last question for you, what does, your ch what does chasing your dreams mean to you? Hmm. It means having courage. I think for me, chasing your dreams means having courage to believe in yourself more than anybody else and a willingness and commitment to pursue what makes you happy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of A Dreamer's Journey. Please don't forget a new episode drops every Wednesday. So hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with anyone you feel will benefit from the stories and topics I discuss on this platform. Keep yourself up to speed by joining the community my team and I are building where you will get access to our coaches and free educational content to enhance your learning and life. Visit www.dreamersmindset.com for more info. Thank you again for your ears and support. Till next time.